The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, our subject for these past few weeks has been the great and terrible day of the Lord. A few weeks ago in a bulletin article, I I shared with you some comments about the nature of time. Ancient cultures believe that time is cyclical. That is, there is a natural reoccurrence of time and events. A cyclical view of time says that the future will look just like the past, that things just keep going round and round and round. And so these ancient cultures believe that the world was constantly being destroyed and then recreated and thus constantly relived. But unique in their view of time were among ancient cultures were the Hebrews. They believed, as we do as Christians today, that time is linear. And the Old Testament bears this out. Uh, Genesis is the book of beginnings. In that first book, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And thus, in the first chapter of Genesis, there is the beginning of time. The universe began when God created the world, ex nihilo, that means out of nothing. And time began when God made the light to shine out of darkness and then regulated it by the earth's rotation on its axis and then its journey around the sun. And the Bible then says that there, there was a beginning, there was a definite point that all things began. Then at the other end of the Bible, there's another book that's dedicated to the end of time. It is the summation of time. Revelation is the unveiling of how God will end the world and thus end the need for regulation of time. All events in the world are headed in a straight line towards completion. So the view that time has a beginning and an ending is called the linear view. And the Bible does teach that time is linear. Time has a direction. It will reach a point, the point that God says it is over, then time stops God concludes the creation and time is no more. But since life goes on forever, what is the point of keeping time? When we get into eternity, there is no need to keep time. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul begins this chapter referring to the last days. The last days are the last of time. We call this the end time, or in biblical terms, it is the study of eschatology. Now notice what he says in our text verses, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 3. But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Paul's purpose here is not to explain how the world will end, but rather to set the stage for a discussion of how we should live and what we should be doing before time ends. Now, how we live has, a, has bearing on what life will be like when this world is over. It also impacts others and what happens to them as they exist when time is over. 
And so included in his exhortation to believers, there is a warning for unbelievers. In this text, he says they will not escape the judgment that comes at the end. He says that there is a day of reckoning coming when all must give an account to God. Now what we're doing in these messages is expanding on the details of the end times. Paul taught the church at Thessalonica some of the details when he visited their city just as he was beginning to found that church. And so he asked the the church to consider in this letter what they'd been taught previously and to think about how they should live knowing this information that Christ is coming back to end time. And of course, the church today needs to be taught this. There's much confusion about it. And I'm quite certain that what we don't do is we don't teach enough about the second coming of Christ. And I'm not saying that what we need is a prophecy seminar every three weeks and fanciful tales of being left behind. But what we do need is encouragement to live for Christ as the end approaches. And that was a theme of apostolic preaching. At Athens on Mars Hill, Paul told the great philosophers that God would judge them by that man that he had appointed. They would be judged by Jesus Christ, the one that God raised from the dead. And it didn't take Paul very long to reach that point in his sermon, at least according to the Acts narrative. There are only a few sentences before we come to the subject of Paul's sermon, and it is the judgment. The Apostle Peter said that considering the world will be burned up and present elements will melt with intense heat, he asked the question, what kind of people ought we to be? Jude is only one chapter. Its subject is how to live with the end in view, the end of the world approaching. John, the Apostle John, in his little epistle of 1 John, wrote that there are many antichrists, that there are many deceivers that have entered into the world. And what was his purpose of telling us that? Well, it's all preparation for the end. It's all to be prepared for the time that Jesus comes back. The world will end. Time is linear. And how it ends is of supreme importance because the end centers on God himself and the purpose of his creation. He created, he sustains what he created, and he will end what he created. And there is a divine purpose in all of it. Now, in our studies, we've explained how that God's wrath at the end will be put on display in seven years of chaos, seven years of utter calamity, seven years of a purging tribulation that will bring in a new era. God promised that there would be a righteous kingdom that would come and it will be worldwide in extent. And this kingdom that he promised will last for 1,000 years. Thus we call it a millennial kingdom, meaning 1,000 years. And it will be glorious, friends. As we read in Isaiah, as we go through there, we'll learn a lot about the glorious kingdom that is to come. But before it's fully established, there is going to be much violence and bloodshed. The demonic armies of Satan and the Antichrist will fight against this coming kingdom of Christ. But then they'll be defeated and be removed from play before righteousness begins to reign. Now, what I'd like to do today is for us to return to Revelation 19, if you'll turn your Bibles there. We opened this scripture in the last message, and we looked at the war for the establishment of the kingdom. And when we speak of the second coming of Christ, this is the main event. The rapture is a preliminary event. The return of Jesus to begin the kingdom, that is the 
That is the climactic event of the second coming. And so when Christ comes with his angelic hosts and his armies of the saints of heaven, he will battle the forces of evil and he will subdue them and then begin his kingdom. Now, we're discussing point number five of this long outline that we've been in, and this is the climax of the day. This is the climax of the great and terrible day of the Lord. In verse 11, John wrote, Revelation 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. John saw a rider on a white horse. You may remember from the sermon a few weeks ago that way back there in Revelation chapter 6, John saw another rider on a white horse. That was a different rider. That rider was the counterfeit Christ. That rider was the Antichrist, the one who mimics Christ. But that rider was false. He is a liar. He rides in with a promise of peace, but with full intentions that he will make war on God and his people. Now in Revelation 19, John sees the real Christ, the Antichrist may try to imitate him, but he has no power that matches the true Christ. And that's the contrast that I want you to see, that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, but there is no peace until the rebellion that this world is in is conquered. And it all begins with this. It begins with the return of the King. We are discussing the return of the king. How does he come? Well, he comes with judgment and with war. In verse number 14, we read that the armies of heaven will follow him. In verse number 15, it says that he's armed with a sharp sword, and with that sword he smites the nations. In verses 17 and 18, there's a description of the carnage of war. There's a call for beasts and birds to come and feast on the flesh of kings and of captains and of mighty men who dared to challenge the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so our observation here is to note that the glorious, peaceful kingdom of Christ will not be ushered in without a great and terrible amount of bloodshed. It's resplendent when the kingdom finally gets here, but it's not going to begin without the devastating defeat of all of those who stand against Christ. Last time we looked at many Old Testament texts that tell us about how this kingdom will come in. And they predicted that the kingdom would come with this, with this shed, shedding of blood and warfare. It's not a recurring event of cyclical time. Jesus said there is no time like it. No one in the past has ever seen anything like this. No one in the future will see anything like this. And nothing like this will ever happen after it. In Genesis 3... The look into the future in the very first book of the Bible, just three chapters in, we saw a promise there of a bruised heel and a bruised head. That was the prophecy of Christ dying on the cross and then how the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will crush the head of Satan. Seven generations from there, Enoch prophesied of tens of thousands that would come with Christ. And then in Genesis chapter 49, it tells of the scepter of Shiloh. That means the king who is a peacemaker. Ezekiel wrote that this time will be a time of fury and fighting. And so the Old Testament scriptures are unanimous that the utopia that the world hopes for, and you hear it said by many people, they're looking for a time of peace over all the earth. The Bible says that time of peace will not come unless comes first righteous judgment. There is a bloody purging. 
of this entire world, a purging of the Christ rejectors. Now in today's message, we need to go on. And next I want to talk to you about the retribution of the king. And we've already seen much of the king's retribution in the way that he chooses to make war. He comes as the angry God. And most refuse to recognize the anger of Christ because they just simply believe that God loves everybody. God is happy with everybody. God overlooks and sympathizes with the faults of everybody. God just lets everybody go to do what they want and God will not punish anybody. But the only information that we have about Jesus Christ and his character is what we find in the word of God. And a Jesus that overlooks sin, that will not judge sin, is not the Jesus of the Bible. So we need to look at this very carefully again, that God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on Calvary. And the Word of God says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And it was God's hatred of sin that caused Him to punish His Son on the cross when He took our sins to Calvary. God gives mercy and grace to repentant sinners, but he has no mercy or grace for those who will not repent. God will judge the world. Paul told the Athenians that he would judge by Jesus Christ, the one that he appointed. Unless you think that, well, no, we're wrong about this, that that God the Father is the one that's wrathful, but Christ is not, then you need to study the scriptures some more. Jesus said that all authority in heaven and earth is given to him. He said God the Father made him the judge. And these scriptures that we read are what his judgment of the earth looks like. He judges and he makes war. And some say, well, that can't be true. I mean, how can God be a God of love and then do this? Is the Bible true when it says that God is a God of love? And I will tell you, yes, the Bible is absolutely true when it says that God is love. But make sure that what you don't do is that you don't attach human thinking to the love of God. See, the best that you know about God's love is shrouded in the depravity of your sin-cursed mind. And so how are you capable of understanding the perfect love of God? One author wrote a book entitled, What Love Is This? And that was a very good question for him because he didn't understand it. What he tried to do was apply human understanding to it. So how does God's love work? Well, first of all, we must say that God God has supreme love for His holiness. That God loves His own righteous character above all else. And so God is active then in making us His righteous people. This is why He punished our sins at the cross in Jesus Christ as the believer's substitute. That through Him we're brought into all of the spiritual blessings that God has for His people. The believer is promised in Christ that there is salvation, there is justification, there is sanctification. It says that we have hope of the resurrection in Him. We're promised glorification in Him. Our happiness and peace are secured because of Him. We're promised to be delivered from wrath because of Him. And this wrath is not only God's wrath for sin that's satisfied in believers through Christ because they have believed. But God also must be satisfied for the sins of all those who are not redeemed. The wrath, this wrath is satisfied by punishment. Christ did not suffer their punishment. And so they must suffer it themselves. Well, how, how is God's love in 
bringing his people into perfect peace. How does God actually demonstrate that? Well, one of the ways that God does it is to destroy all things that afflict his people. We are in Christ. And understand what the word of God says. We are in Christ. What does it mean? We are completely in him so that everything that is against us is also against Christ. So every person that stands against a believer in Jesus Christ stands against Christ because we're in him. Well, God's anger on the world is a consequence of his love for his people. God loves us, his people, so much that he will protect us against anything that would hazard our happiness. Now, if you'll turn just a few pages to Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8, here Jesus speaks and says in that seventh verse, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But then here comes his judgment. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know, there are many people that read this scripture and they see the word abominable. And they see the word murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers. And they say, oh, I'm not that. He can't be talking about me. Oh, but Jesus threw in something else there, didn't he? Liars. Anybody ever here told a lie? Any of you? All liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's God's anger. Why is God so angry? Well, because God's love for his people is not going to allow anything to exist that conflicts with the peace and the happiness of heaven. All of that must be gone. Now let me just ask, are you happy? Are you happy that you need to lock your doors at night? Are you happy that the schools indoctrinate your children in the ways of sexual perversion? Are you happy that your tax dollars pay for the murder of innocent babies? Are you happy that it's not safe to go to the mall to school, to a concert, or even to church without fear of being shot down. God has to get rid of all of that. God is angry at the wicked every day because the wicked break his law and they heap misery on his people. God loves his people and he will avenge them. Now notice in the text of Revelation 19 that the text depicts his anger. In verse number 12 of chapter 19, it says, His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. His eyes, it says, are as a flame of fire. They burn with judgment. Daniel saw the same vision of him in Daniel 10. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of euphaz. His body also was like the burl, and his face as the appearance of lightning. And his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Take that passage, compare it to others earlier in the Revelation, and you'll find Daniel there is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, a pre-manifestation of Jesus Christ. Some say, well, if you want to know a person, the way to get to know them is to look into their eyes. Look into their eyes. Eyes can tell you something about a person. Eyes tell you if a if someone is sad, a downward look, droopy eyelids betray sadness. 
If a person's eyes are wide and vibrant, we say they're wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. Policemen are trained to look into the eyes. Often, they're a tip-off that a person is lying. Even a gambler looks into the eyes to spot the tick of a bluff. And likewise, the eyes tell us something about Christ. His eyes are as a flame of fire. The gaze is hot. It's penetrating. It reveals what's on his mind. Proverbs says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Eyes like a flame of fire are angry eyes. Jonathan Edwards, that great preacher, the angel of the first great awakening, opened people's eyes to who God is when he preached his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Did you know people can't really understand salvation until they recognize how angry that God is about their sin? Most gospel presentations today, as I mentioned last week, never talk about God's anger. They'll never talk about hell. They'll never talk about the consequences of sin. But God is angry about sin. And you can't understand what you need to be saved from until you realize how angry that God is about sin. And he will punish sin. Wrath and judgment and hell. Did you know that those were never very far from the center of Jesus' sermons? In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about his kingdom and he concluded with four statements about the destiny of unbelievers. He said they are on the broad road to destruction. He said that they will be cut down and cast into the fire. He said they will be cast away because he doesn't know them. And then in his last illustration, the one that most people are very much aware of because it's the, about the man who built his house on the sand and the man who built his house on the rock. And Jesus' point was that there was that their house will be destroyed. Great will be the fall of their house. And he meant their lives would be crushed in utter devastation. Then look at his anger again in verse number 15. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You see that word fierceness? That characterizes his wrath. That word actually means breathing hard. You ever been so angry at someone that your head pounds, your respiration goes up, your heart is furiously beating hard. You clench your fist. Your blood pressure rises and your face turns red. You ever been in the middle of a road rage? Can you, can you imagine? Can you picture Christ that way? Do you understand him that way? Or are you stuck on the soft, effeminate pictures of Jesus that people hang on the wall? He will come in the fierceness of his anger. But don't mistake this, friends. His anger is not like ours. His anger is righteous and holy. It's not road rage. His anger is righteous and holy. It is just. And that is the worst kind of anger because it needs no support. It is what it is. His anger burns as hot as needed because it always results in perfect justice. It's perfect restitution that brings about the desired consequences. And then if you look again, you can see how his anger controls the way that he will rule in this kingdom that comes. Can we make another observation? The fierceness of his anger and the protection of his people affects the way that he rules. 
So we look at the rule of the king. How does he rule in this kingdom? Well, we see the rod in verse number 15. It says that he rules with a rod of iron. Why must he rule that way? Well, let's think for a minute who will be in this kingdom. The kingdom is promised to Israel. It will be Jewish in character and it fulfills the promise that Jerusalem will be the capital of the earth. Jesus promised his disciples that they would sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This kingdom lasts for 1,000 years and during this long stretch of time, children will be born. None will be aborted. The saints that come back with Christ are not going to rule each other. They will rule unbelievers. I'm not going to get into all the reasons why I make this next statement, but I don't believe that the millennial kingdom is a great time for numbers to be brought to salvation, great numbers. The Bible says that its salvation will be known to the ends of the earth, but it's apparent there's somebody in this kingdom that has to be ruled with a rod of iron. Believers don't need to be ruled with a rod of iron. Believers don't have to be ruled in harshness. And so there are many children, people that are born during these long centuries, and we know that every person born is born with a sinful nature. Every person is born in rebellion against God. There is no one who has a natural inclination to serve the living God. And so for an unbeliever to serve God takes force. They won't do it without it. They hate righteousness. They hate the righteous king. People love sin. That never changes. A good environment... A healthy environment, a peaceful environment doesn't save anybody. Passing righteous legislation won't save anybody then any more than it saves people now. People will live under a perfect government, but they will hate it. Now, you'll notice that the word rule in verse 15, if you look behind the meaning of it, the word rule there means to shepherd. Now, we might misunderstand that if we think that it means Christ will gently nudge people to follow him, but you need to think about it again. A shepherd uses a wooden staff. There's a crook uh, in that staff. It collars the sheep to bring the sheep in. And that's the way that a pastor shepherds a church. That's what pastor means, a shepherd. That's the way that he does it. He gently leads the people and pulls them back in. But this staff is not a wooden rod. This is iron, an iron staff. And in the scripture, iron stands for power. Now, another use of a shepherd's staff is to beat off wolves. Any, anything that's going to attack the sheep, the shepherd uses the staff to beat the wolves. And when you see here a rod of iron, an iron staff, it's used for powerfully beating down the wolves, that is, the enemies of God's people. Now, an iron rod, that's emphatic in the test, in the text. If you'll just turn to Psalm chapter 2 now, there we see... This, this side of Christ where he uses the iron rod. And I know everybody, you're familiar with Psalm 23, where it says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Knowing Christ as a comforting shepherd, that's wonderful for God's people. It's great to have his care and concern and protection. That brings peace to our soul. But this rod and staff of Psalm 23 is for God's people. He doesn't beat them with it. But how different is the rod and character of Christ in Psalm chapter 2? There's a different type of shepherding used here. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. 
Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. Right there, he's talking about the millennial kingdom. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt what? Break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt what? Dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, are ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. That's the other side of the picture. So you go home and you take that picture of Jesus hanging on your wall and flip it around. See if this is on the back side of the picture. The iron rod doesn't put a little lump on the head. According to the scripture here, it cracks the skull like breaking a clay pot. So the millennial kingdom is not going to be fun for lost people. Without changed heart, there's no, hearts, there's no one who cares for the king. Their hearts are not voluntary subjects of God. They don't praise God. They don't like scripture. They don't like prayer. Which sort of sounds like the average church member. The average church member doesn't come to church like he should. He stays home from church because he doesn't, church doesn't interest him enough. And so they have their petty excuses. The truth is they don't like scripture. They don't like preaching. They don't like singing. They don't like praising. They don't like praying. So is there any evidence they're Christians? How? Why? Where's the evidence? There's no difference between them and lost people. So what do we conclude? The very same thing that Jesus concluded, I don't know you. They're not like the lost, they are the lost. And that's very frightening. If you think about this, how much condemnation would be heaped upon a person who goes through the millennium, lives under the righteous kingdom of Christ, and yet refuses to believe him? How much condemnation would be upon a person who saw all of that and didn't believe in Jesus Christ? Well, then you need to ask the same question about people who, who have been in church, people who have heard the gospel of Christ, people even who have professed to know Christ, but then end up apostate. That is frightening to think of what judgment will be like. Those that are saved love the reign of Christ. They don't need a rod to rule them. So good Christians, good church members, what do they do? Well, they would respect a pastor who gently corrects them. They respect the pastor who points out sin and sometimes even applies a little pressure towards it and maybe throws some shame in there too. They can appreciate that because the object of it is your soul. The object is your well-being and your closeness to Christ. The object of it is your blessedness and the reward in the eternal kingdom of Christ. Now in the millennial kingdom, the world's vices will be shut down. The bars will close. The casinos will be burned to ashes. Grayton will be a fire grate. No Hollywood movies. No abortion clinics. No pot dispensaries. No sexual and violent video games. Nothing like that. Now, you see, every place in the world, every place that the world wants to spend time and money, it's all gone. How happy are people going to be with that kind of rule? And then think about this. The kingdom is a righteous kingdom. 
a righteous kingdom. The law is enforced in the kingdom. Do you think that anybody is going to rob God of his tithes and offerings? How happy will lost people to live under that rule? Now, the millennial kingdom is a kingdom of glorious light. Sin is exposed. And so while the people of God enjoy a thousand years of bliss, the lost are there in a thousand years of misery. Bugs under a rock don't like to be exposed, and neither will they. They must be ruled with a rod of iron because they won't do what God wants them to do. But let me show you something now in chapter 20 of Revelation. For 1,000 years, this righteous reign of the kingdom goes on and Satan and his angels during that time have been chained in the bottomless pit, in the abyss. Look at verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So Christ rules in the millennium without interference from Satan and demons. Satan is bound. He can't tempt anyone. He can't work on anyone. And that shows that the human heart is wicked even without Satan. You can't blame Satan for your evil. Satan only exacerbates what's already in your heart. Now you go down to verses 7 and 8, and it says, And when the thousand years are expired, when that thousand years of the kingdom are over, Satan shall be loosed from his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now Satan has been loosed, he's been turned loose uh, there at the end of the kingdom, and now millions of people, as the number of the sand of the sea, began to follow Satan again. These are the ones that have been ruled with the rod of iron. So Satan is turned loose, he comes back to the earth, then what happens? He deceives the nations again. So people that lived under 1,000 years of Christ's perfect government are easily deceived again. The Bible said it takes just a short time, just a season, and how they're ready to throw off righteous rule. Does that tell you something about the sinful heart? It won't change. A perfect world doesn't change it. And so how can anybody believe that in this world, in the world today that's filled with its vices, with its temptations, with Satan here, with his demons here. And Satan has so long that he's had to deceive with every imaginable evil that he, he works in the world today. How with all of that and then with the inherent depravity of man in his heart, how could anyone believe that that person can come to Christ unless God should first change his evil heart? You see, the will is in bondage. We're slaves to sin, and the stubborn will of man must be broken, and it will not be broken until Christ comes to bind the strong, the strong man and cast him out. Christ must yank Satan off the throne of your heart, or you haven't the chance of a snowball in hell of repenting and believing. Now, friends, your salvation is a deliberate act of the sovereign God. I'm sorry, but it's blasphemy to say that you can do what only God can do. These people then are quickly deceived. They gather again to battle against the Lord. They assemble with their army that's led by Satan. They surround the holy city of Jerusalem. 
there in that holy city. As I mentioned earlier, Christ is worshipped in his temple. And so they come and they intend to fight against him to take the city and throw the king off the throne. But God was through with that long ago. He'll not fight again. Instead, he snaps his fingers, he rains down fire from heaven and destroys them all. That's verses 9 and 10. And they went upon the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's the end of Satan. That is the end of evil. The day of the Lord climaxes the end of time with the final destruction of this world. Now, we're not ready to speak of the final assize, not just yet. But instead, I want to back up and I want to talk to you about this wonderful world of the millennium. We've seen how it comes and how it goes. On both ends of it, there's violence. But that part in the middle, the thousand years, the Bible gives much time and space to talk about how wonderful it is. This is what the Jews look forward to every time that the prophets wrote of their deliverance. It's the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. This is what the disciples thought of. They were descendants of these Old Testament Jews. And they were constantly asking Jesus, when is the kingdom going to come? When will you begin your kingdom? How long will it be? When will you restore the kingdom? And there's good reason they wanted to know. And I want you to know, because as a believer, you will have a part in Christ's kingdom. Now going back to chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians, they wanted to know, What will happen to those Christians that died before Christ comes to establish the kingdom? That was the discussion in chapter 4 about the rapture. What happened to the people that died before Christ came? Will they have a part of the kingdom? Now, they did very well understand that those who died go to heaven to be with the Lord. But they also knew that Paul taught them about this kingdom. So what about people that die before Jesus comes? Do they get into the kingdom? And there are so many texts about, uh, in the Old Testament about the kingdom that Paul stepped through all of those prophecies to show them how marvelous that salvation in Christ is. Many of them are slaves. They have no status. And so it's good to hear that Christ saved them, made them free, and they would be in his kingdom. And of course, Paul would use all of that to urge them to faithfulness to serve God. The end is coming. Time is linear. The future holds something that's never been seen before. Christ is coming back. And his kingdom is too. All the saints of God will be here. Will be there. Now I want to talk about the change the world will go through as it reflects the glory of God. Nothing is better for you than the glory of God. And that's why God loves holiness and righteousness and his law above all else. Why does he love it? Because it glorifies him. And whatever glorifies him is best for you. So our question is, we'll return and to this next time and we'll talk about the kingdom. The question is, do you know Christ? The question is, have you repented? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? That's a very important thing because the lost have no hope of Christ's kingdom. You do not want to hope for Christ's kingdom unless you know, unless you know Jesus Christ. This is what you must do. You must trust him. You must repent of your sins. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And then the Bible promises you will see the kingdom of God. If not, 
with these physical eyes that you have right at this very moment, when you die and go to heaven, you'll come back to rule and reign with Christ on this earth. That's the promise that God gives to his people, those who have faith in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the precious blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross of Calvary to save us from our sins. Lord, as we've stated in the message today, people must believe this. They must repent of their sins, put their faith in you, and then you will save them from their sins. And all the anger, the wrath of God, the judgment of God is turned away and we are pardoned in Jesus Christ. We are in him so that we receive all the inheritance that Christ receives himself. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that someone today would put their trust in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.